Turning finally back in our Bible to Genesis chapter 21. should have mentioned there's also a little sermon notes page uh, in the bulletin this morning. There's also uh, some questions, and an- uh, questions for kids to answer. Uh, that's on that table on the way in as well. So Genesis, we're in chapter 21 this morning. Genesis 21. Let's hear what the Lord says. Give our attention to it, uh, open our hearts to hear what God wants us to know, to believe today. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over or with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Uh, speaking here of Ishmael. Notice Ishmael is never mentioned by name. So she, so she said to Abraham, Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. (coughs) And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look at the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. 
You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. And God writes his words on our hearts this morning. Well, as, uh, as our brother Danny prayed, and as we all know, it's been a very momentous week in, uh, in our modern history. Uh, still ongoing, of course, potentially uh, what might be, we, we fear. I pray, pray not. Uh, World War III, uh, the l- world's largest nuclear superpower, uh, attack a relatively small neighbor. Of course, this brings up many questions for us. Uh, as we even come to our text this morning, uh, what God wants us to hear, uh, can there be hope for humanity in this life if such things uh, can happen, if such things can be allowed to happen? Where is God in all of this? I, uh, I saw a little video this week on uh, Twitter of a Ukrainian family uh, singing uh, that very song that we sang this morning, uh, in Christ alone, in a small little apartment without much light, uh, in fear of what was uh, about to happen. Where's God in all this? Is life just a random mess? Is it just a place uh, for brutal attacks, terrorism, wars? Is life meaningless? Times like war, of course, bring those things up. And uh, even watching and seeing and uh, Experiencing something of that from a distance, even on a screen. Can God be real? But our passage reminds us this morning uh, of what truly is uh, the most important thing, that God, yes, is real, and God has made promises. God is a promise maker and promise keeper. And even when uh, sinful men and women... uh, make a havoc of the world, God is reliable. God is the one who is the center of existence. Uh, He's described here, of course, as the Lord. He's the God who made a covenant with Father Abraham, and he brings that to pass here. We see the birth of Isaac, and again, he's going to keep that promise uh, when he redeems and liberates the very children, the grandchildren, the great-great-great-grandchildren, the Israelites. He brings them out of Egypt one day, in fulfillment of his very promises. This very same God who made various promises, and of course, uh, we've messed it all up. We saw that in Jeremiah 46, another great example of that. Uh, We see that with uh, the willy-nilly way in which the Jews uh, divorce their wives. Uh, God, as I've mentioned, the Bible is a story of God doing the saving, but we doing the sinning, right? We sin, but yet God saves. God is a God of promises, and a God, a God who keeps his promises. And of course, ultimately, 
uh, the story brings us to Jesus, the great son, the great seed, uh, the great fulfillment of the promise to Father Abraham. God has made promises, and Genesis 21 reminds us of that. In God's good providence, we need to hear that this morning. We need to know that God is on our side, that God has a plan to redeem the world, that God is good, and that God is real. Uh, it's also a, uh, it's also a, this has also been a week in which uh, this uh, country, Ukraine, has had to wait and wait and wait. And they even today still wait for help. Uh, that seemingly is not coming. And for all the alliances and treaties and covenants, the kinds of things even that Abraham uh, and Abimelech enter into, uh, because of all these reasons, certain things can't be done and certain things might be uh, done and some things might possibly happen in the future if such and such things happen. Uh, and so a country that's under attack has to wait. Reminds us that life, even is a life of waiting sometimes we wait with patience sometimes we have to wait with great anxiety for many things sometimes we wait eagerly for something to happen for uh, for dad to come home from work or for mom to return from a trip or for us to go see grandma or grandpa or for us to graduate school we wait eagerly for those things but yet we also await other things fearfully fearfully and here in this wonderful story, we have Father Abraham and, and, and our foremother, Sarah, who've been waiting for God to do what he said he would do. And they've been waiting, and the, that waiting comes to its end. It comes to its end. It comes to its fulfillment, at least in this Old Testament way, this provisional way, this partial way. It comes true because what God said was going to happen now happens. This little baby's born. Do you recall, brothers and sisters, how long have they been waiting? God called Abraham in chapter 12, and we've read the story, and it sort of twists and turns. How many years has it been since God said he was going to bless uh, through Abraham all the nations and to give a son? Like 25 years, 25 years. I'm 48, so I was like half of, my, half of life, right? Half of life. Uh, some of us are younger than that, some of us are older than that, but 25 years is a long time. It's a long time. They've been waiting for 25 years for God to do what he said he would do. Waiting, wondering, questioning, doubting, believing, struggling. Uh, and so Father Abraham is, is, is for us as well, uh, uh, as Paul even tells us, that we share in the faith of Father Abraham, and so he's a picture to us of the Christian life. Uh, as we wait uh, for what God says he's going to do, uh, we know, as we sang in that wonderful hymn, there's no fear in life. Uh, uh, there's no condemnation for us who are in Jesus Christ. We know that we belong to Jesus Christ. We have no other comfort but him alone. That's what we mean when we talk about being justified, that we we have been given Christ's very righteousness uh, to us so that we can come to God. We can approach him with boldness and confidence, not with doubts, but being assured that he's on our side. But then there's the life that we have to live. And so Abraham is, is like uh, a, a, a picture to us in the Old Testament of what Paul talks about uh, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that, that he is putting off of us 
that old man, he is sanctifying us, but yet there's still that war within us between belief and unbelief, between godliness and ungodliness, trusting God and trusting ourselves. And ultimately there is that chapter 8, that glorious chapter of the final day when we see the Lord face to face, that glorification uh, that awaits us. In between that, he's making us, he's conforming us to the image of his son Jesus. And we have to wait. We have to wait. So here's this wonderful story of, of promises that God makes. Abraham and Sarah, who've been waiting for the promise, speaks to us in many ways, but let's, let's just focus our hearts here on, on how God fulfills his promise and how it encourages us, uh, even in our own doubts. Notice, uh, and I mentioned this before in chapter 22 weeks ago, that the Lord here uh, is, is removing two great doubts. So notice that, uh, that, that, that first big point. He removes a laughter of doubt and there's two big doubts that we see uh, in, that uh, Abraham is struggling with throughout the story from chapter 12 all the way here. He's struggling with God's promises and he's struggling with what God uh, has said about protection. God's promises and protection. And it's the same with us. Two of the great things that we doubt and that we struggle to believe and to, and to embrace wholeheartedly God's promises to us and his protection. And so we as parents, for example, we, we pray, Lord, you've said to us that if we raise up our children the way that they would go, that they would not depart from you. We doubt that. It's hard. It's a struggle. We pray in the Lord's Prayer that, the Lord would, uh, that he would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know his promise that he is going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That he will never leave us or forsake us. That he will protect us. That he will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We will feel no evil. But yet we struggle with that. It's no different. It's been no different in these chapters with, with Abraham, who's heard the call of God, who's believed, but yet, like a believer, ups and downs, wax and wane, the ebbs and flows of faith, the promises and the protection of God. But the Lord removes these things now as he keeps his word. Notice that... Uh, the doubt of his promises is removed. Look at verses 1 through 7, really the heart of, of the action here, where the Lord visited. He visited, or as other translations say, he came, or he took note, or as the NIV, I think it is the NIV, says that he was gracious towards Sarah, as he had said. And this, this, this verb has been used before, and it's used many times throughout the Old Testament, pachad, and, and it's a verb that speaks of a direct intervention of God in human affairs. God enters human history, and God does something. He enters human experience, and he does something. He's visited, we've seen already, with those three men at the very tent of Abraham, and, and God visits at times in the lives of humans and their affairs in various ways. This verb is used in the Old Testament for God's general providence. The Psalms, for example, Psalm 65, verse 9, praises the Lord, you visit the earth and water it. Think about that. When, when rain comes down from the clouds and the condensation that, meet, that, that, that uh, meets there in the clouds of the sky and a certain amount of heat, a certain amount of... Uh, of water is evaporated, it meets with dust, and it makes 
All those water molecules begin to stick together and makes raindrops heavy enough to fall down. We know all the scientific explanation of that, but yet that's God visiting the earth, the psalm says. You visit the earth and water it. God in his providence, holding a, holding a watering can over the earth, as it were, as the psalms describe it. He visits in providence, in protection, uh, 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 in provision, in giving to the earth what it needs. God also visits in a way of judgment. This verb's used of God judging as well. Uh, we know, for example, uh, in the second commandment, you shall not bow down to idols nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What's the, ne- what's the next word that comes in that sentence? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, keep, uh, who obey me and keep my commands. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. God sometimes visits in judgments. For God to appear then, for God to, to, to arrive then, uh, for God to visit us, we've got to be careful sometimes for what we ask for. What are we asking for? What is the situation? What's the context? God can visit and God can arrive and God can do things, but oftentimes it's judgment, so we've got to be careful for what we ask. But this verb is also used especially of redemption. Not just providence in a general way God provides, not, not, not in judgment, but the opposite of judgment in redemption. Salvation. If you look in Genesis, the very end of Genesis, we'll get to this eventually, chapter 50, this verb's used in the life of Joseph, uh, where God is making this wonderful promise of Genesis 50 at verse number 24. <clears throat> Notice uh, there, Joseph, this is after uh, Jacob dies, Joseph then says to his brothers, verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Why is it a a positive thing? Notice, and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So he made a promise that he was going to visit, and they took great comfort in the fact that God was going to visit and bring them out of Egypt into the place that God had sworn to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that came true a little bit later on in Exodus 3 and 4. In Exodus 3 and 4, for example, Exodus 4, verse 31. And the people believe, this is after Moses and Aaron go out uh, from Pharaoh, let my people go, and they speak to the Israelites. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. And that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God arrived, God came, God visited, God was gracious, God took note of the Israelites, just as he had done so in our story, taking note of, being gracious towards, visiting, arriving, coming to Sarah, to bring to her the promised fulfillment, to bring to her redemption, to bring to us, Redemption And God had done this, notice verse 1 and 2, as he had said, as he had promised at the time which he had spoken. 
Did God's promises ever get fulfilled just a moment late? When God says he's going to do something, does it ever come late? Now, it might feel late to us, right? We might think, and even, the, the, even in, 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 in the scriptures you see people agonizing over this. God, you said, but God knows. God knows, the, for example, the, the day and the hour of the Lord's coming. Don't speculate, Jesus says. You don't need to know those things. All you need to know is that I'm coming soon. God knows the day and the hour. So there's a moment, right? There's a, there's a moment as appointed, a very specific time and place where God promises for Abraham and for Sarah to give to them a son. His name's going to be Isaac. He's going to bless the world. It's been 25 long years. Though. Lord, where's the promise? God has been teaching them to be patient. God has been teaching them to struggle through faith and to believe the promise and to give that promise fulfillment exactly when God knew was right and perfect and good. As he said, as he promised, at the time which God had spoken to him. And so Abraham responds, notice he names his son, he circumcises his son as God had commanded him. He names him Isaac, Yitzhak, Isaac. He laughs, is what his name means, he laughs. Bruce Waltke, a great Old Testament commentator, says that his name is a pun. Right, It's a play on words. It's a pun with the laughter of disobedience and joy Abraham and Sarah have expressed. God spoke the promise in the tent in chapter 18, and Sarah laughed. And then even Abraham laughs. But it's God, as it were, who has the last laugh, right? Because it's God who gives the fulfillment, the right time, the right moment. And Sarah's response is, God has made laughter for me. And now her skepticism, when she laughs, she snickers as if we're outside the tent, that a year from now you're going to have a son, and she laughs. How is such an old man and an old woman going to have a child? She's, she struggles to see that. Lord, how's it going to happen? But now she laughs. She laughs in joy. She laughs in great fulfillment. So they, they, they've had many ups and downs. They've believed, they've struggled. It's been a long 25 years. And just like father and mother, Abraham and Sarah, do we laugh? Do we doubt? Do we struggle? Are we perplexed at times with God's promises? Where is God in all this? Where is the Lord? Why is he not doing the things that we, we believe or we think he says he's going to do? Where is he? One poet says it like this, when our confidence is shaken in beliefs we thought secure, when the spirit, speaking of our human spirit, in its sickness seeks but cannot find a cure, God is active in the tensions of a faith not yet mature. It's okay that faith has doubts. It's okay that Abraham and Sarah struggled in faith. It's okay that we struggle in doubt. Because God is at work in that tension between faith and doubt. The poet also says this, God is love and he redeems us. In the Christ we crucify. 
this is God's eternal answer to the world's eternal why. May we, in this faith, maturing, be content to live and die. The cross and the resurrection, the great answer for the questions of why. Let's be content, as that writer says, to live and to die, maturing in that faith, embracing embracing the promise. Notice as well that there's a certain amount of protection that the Lord has promised. Of course, he has to stay alive to have this promise come true, and we've seen that throughout the story. But yet they struggled with that. And so you see as well, at the end of the story, just skipping, skipping forward just quickly here, verse 22 to 34, uh, back to Abimelech from chapter 20, uh, Abimelech sees what God has done. Remember, he feared God. Abraham was afraid. And so he said, you know, I, I didn't know there was going to be any fear of God in this place. And so I, I said that she's my sister. But he actually fears God. And now he sees that come true. He sees in his life God's protection, God's provision, God's promises coming true. He now and this elderly wife have had a son. He sees what God has done. God is with you, verse 22. is what they say. He and his, he and his uh, army commander. God is with you in all that you do. God is with you in all that you do. What an amazing thing for this, 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 this non-covenant member to recognize that in the life of a child of God, God is present and with you. And notice, it's very astonishing here. You have the father of the faithful and this man who, this king and his army, right? They're in the land of what will become the land of the Philistines later on, sort of as a foreshadowing of these enemies of God. They make a covenant. They make a treaty here back and forth. I've dealt well with you. Deal well with me and so forth. And they, and they, and they make this agreement, this treaty, this covenant. And, and Abraham, and, and, and when that treaty seems to, have, uh, seems to be on sort of rocky footing there, one of the, uh, the servants seizes a well of water and Abraham goes and says, you know, what, why have they done this? And he says, I don't know why they did this. I don't even know who did it. Abraham takes seven lambs and gives them as a witness, as a testimony. And they swear an oath together and they, they go their way. And Abraham, notice, he, he notices the hand of God in these very mundane details of life. Right? Treaties and, and legalese, right? The fine print that we all just click accept terms and conditions without even looking at. But he sees in those fine grain details the hand of God protecting him, and he believes. Notice what he does. Plants there a tree, calls there on the name of the Lord. Right? He prays. And Moses, the author, gives us a little further detail about who the Lord is. He's, notice, El Olam. He is the everlasting God. He thanks God. This everlasting God who's always been and always will be, who's made the heavens and the earth, who has all power and authority, who's El Shaddai. That in these little details, he has been present to protect. And here's an example of a, of a faithful man, the life of faith, notice, he, he's interacting as 
representative, of course, of all believers, of the church, the people of God, but here he is with this unbeliever, this God-fearer, not quite a covenant member, king, right? a leader. Aren't we called as Christians, aren't we, aren't we called to, to, to pray for all in authority over us? What kind of lives does Paul tell us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Uh, what kind of lives are we supposed to be living in the eyes of even unbelieving Roman Caesars? 1 Peter 2. What does he say there? Do you know the, the specific? We're supposed to live peaceable and what? Quiet lives. Right? In the sight of all men, but especially the king, right? The Caesar, emperor, ruler. It's an example to us of how Abraham here, as a man of faith, he is responding to God's promises, but he's doing it in the real world. He's interacting with this unbeliever, this king. He's, he's giving thanks. He's calling upon God's name and praying and so forth. There's a great old prayer in uh, one, of our, one of our prayers, and, it, uh, and, and in it we pray for uh, the civil magistrates, right? The, the civil rulers. We, we, we pray for our president, our vice president. We pray for our governor, for the, all the courts and all those local and, 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 and state and national officials. Particularly, we would remember those whom thou hast set in authority over us, this prayer says. Grant that they may fulfill their task in such a, way, in such a manner that the king of kings may reign over them and us, and that the kingdom of Satan, which is a kingdom of shame and iniquity, may through them as thy servants be more and more opposed and destroyed, and that we may live a peaceable life in all godliness and honor. I can't pray for that guy. He's a Democrat. Right? I can't pray for her or him, you know. She's Green Party, you know. I can't pray for that Republican, right? But we pray. We pray for them, believers and unbelievers alike. And we actually pray that even through unbelievers that God would manifest his kingdom. And that even through the civil magistrate, as much as we may not like certain ones, the gospel is proclaimed and free to be proclaimed. So here's Abraham interacting with this in response to the Lord's protection, interacting with this king. So notice how how the Lord here in this, all these details, he removes the laughters of doubt that that they previously had, Abraham and, and Sarah, and now they, they laugh, and now they are full of joy in the protection and the promises of God that he's made to them. And we'll see how Abraham now is growing in faith, and chapter 22 takes the ultimate act of faith, the ultimate step of faith, and takes his son up to a mountain to sacrifice him, as God has commanded him. He believes, but he has to grow in faith, and even be tested in faith. Notice, secondly, or finally, the, the Lord reverses the laughter of derision as well, and uh, in that middle part of the, of the text, there in verse 8, we learn that, uh, that uh, uh, Isaac is weaned, and in the ancient Near East, that would have been somewhere between two to five years uh, of a weaning period. Uh, and when that happens, Father Abraham puts a great festival, a great feast, right? A big birthday party for his son of promise, Isaac. He laughs. That means Ishmael is about, about 16 years old or so at this time. And Sarah, at this party, notice, 
she sees, and I mentioned before that, that uh, Ishmael is never mentioned by name. He's just called you know, the boy, the child, the son of, the, of Hagar the Egyptian, the son of the, of the slave woman, and so forth. It's one of the ways in which we see that the line of promise is in Isaac, not in Ishmael. But Sarah sees at a party, she sees Ishmael laughing, laughing. Well, that's his name after all, isn't it? He laughs, Yitzhak, Isaac. But Paul tells us in Galatians 4.21 that this was an act of persecuting. That Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. Persecuting him. I mean, we can imagine him laughing there at this party. You know, what's all the fuss about this guy laughter after all? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? I mean, I'm the oldest. I'm the firstborn, after all. I'm the one who's going to get all the, all the, the inheritance, all the animals that, that my dad has. So many of them, he can just take seven of them and give them to the king. That's how rich he is. I'm going to get it all. You know, what's the big deal about this kid? This kid laughter. But it's an act of persecuting the faithful, according to the Apostle Paul. In, in the details here, you have, you have Sarah, of course, who is very, very upset. And you have, you have Abraham. Uh, he's twisted up in a knot as well about it. But it's God who reaffirms his promise. And do I need to just remind us what, he, what God says? You know, husbands, listen to your wife. Whatever she says, do it, right? <laughs> but notice... The big thing that God says there, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I'm going to bless Ishmael too, but the promise, right? The promise that I've been making to you is going to come through Isaac. It's God who reaffirms the covenant line through Isaac in this marital strife, household struggle, the drama of ordinary life. It's God reaffirms his promise there, that it's through him that the offspring shall come and be blessed uh, to the whole world. We live uh, in an age of great and grave doubts, of uh, skepticism. Is there a God? If there is, what kind of a God is he? Is he real? Is he alive? Is he in the details of life? But we read in our story this morning of a God who is faithful and reliable. Who doesn't just give promises. He doesn't over-promise and under-deliver like so many of us. No, God is faithful and reliable to all that he has said. In that song we sang, or in one of the songs that we sing, uh, there's a line that says, He'll not... Let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. You can trust this God, my friend. You can trust this God who makes promises. And he shows us in the Bible from the beginning to the end that he actually keeps them. Keeps them. There's not one promise that God has, has made that either hasn't already come true and that won't come true. And we know that the ones that he's made about things that have yet to happen, we know that those are going to come true too because of all the examples, the hundreds and the thousands of times he said something and it actually happened. 
And so we have confidence. We have assurance. And so you and I can take God's promises to the bank today. He's faithful and yet he is reliable. And we also live in an age of great wealth and prosperity that leads to much dissatisfaction. But here in the story, God is showing that he's sufficient. He's sufficient for us. He didn't make the promise come when maybe Abraham and Sarah wanted it to come. He wanted them to know that he was the one to be satisfied in, that he was the one who's sufficient for us. When he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. That should be enough for us. And so he shows them that, that he keeps the promise. As he said, at the time at which he said, he kept the promise. God promises to you and to me this morning, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever today, he promises to us all throughout his word and all throughout the stories of the Bible, God promises to us that when we come to him and we do so in faith, we trust in his son Jesus, whom he has sent, who is that great promised seed of the woman, the great son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promises you and me that when we come to him through his son in faith, He will give to you and to me now new and everlasting life and a life that is more abundant and more satisfying than anything we can either think or imagine in all of our thoughts and desires. And so that same God says to you, he says to me, he says to us this morning, come to me, come to me, trust in me, I am reliable. I am firm. I am faithful. Let's pray. Great and gracious God, we ask now that you would open up our hearts and minds to your word and write these things upon our hearts. And as we believe them, Lord, and as we go out, we pray that the Lord's Supper would give us an extra measure of strength and assurance and comfort, uh, Lord, and uh, impressing upon our hearts and minds this morning that you are a faithful God that you are the all-sufficient God, you're all that we need. Lord, help us to embrace these promises afresh. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.